Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace and I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 reporter Daniel Lloyd. Dan, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, currently in Düsseldorf, getting ready to head home after a, another epic Nürburgring 24. Loads of action up and down the, the grid, especially in the SP9 class with the GT3 cars. Yeah, looking forward to uh, getting stuck in with the analysis. We're glad to have you, and we'll be joined in the show later by Sports Car 365 Editor-in-Chief John DeGeese. But for now, let's dive right in. We've got a great show for you today. We'll recap the Total Energy's 24 hours of the Nürburgring, the Intelligent Money British GT Championship round at Donington Park, talk about Super GT, we'll bring you the news of the week, answer some listener questions, and give you a preview of what's to come in the sports car racing world. All that and more on this episode of Double Stint. Well, Dan, let's dive right in to the 24 Hours of the Ring because it was an exceptional race uh, and a very, very exciting opening stint. We saw lots of front runners crash out. Where do we even begin here? It, it was really, really crazy at times, Jonathan. It was, it was a, a hectic start to the race. I think some people thought it was perhaps a bit over the edge, a few too many incidents. Um, we certainly saw the, the front running field really thin out after a sort of eight hours of racing. Um, a lot of the cars we would expect to be protagonists had fallen by the wayside. Um, the variety of the field had really taken a hit because we were left at the end with um, Audi versus Mercedes AMG. I was at Bathurst a couple of weeks ago and it sort of seemed uh, seemed like a repeat of that at times. But um, no, it, it was uh, really, really uh, uh, frenetic action at the head of the field. And uh, the action started before the start of the race, actually, with uh, qualifying, where we saw Luca Ludwig put the Octane 126 Ferrari on pole. Um, a real surprise there. The, the Ferrari brand hadn't taken a pole at the Nürburgring since 2011 through Dominic Farnbacker. So um, Ludwig managed to uh, upset the odds. Uh, he, he toppled the Rover Racing BMW of Augusto Farfus, um, who's been a real specialist in Nürburgring qualifying of late um, to, to take the top spot in that session. I know the Octane 126 team um, had been making a few complaints about BOP and politics in the build-up. I, I suggest that was probably uh, a fair amount of theatre to that as Ludwig reeled off an 809 469 on a full fuel tank really really impressive from the german driver but then as the race started um things really changed a lot the the ferrari shuffled down with a puncture we saw different cars take the lead of the race um and as you said jonathan there was a lot of action in the first few hours some uh, really noteworthy incidents that we'll i'm sure we'll uh, head into in detail now well you read my mind i think really the headline of the opening stint at least was the fact that well, there might be an uncomfortable family dinner at the Van Thor household tonight. The uh, the two brothers said there is no bad blood, but uh, nevertheless, I, I would not like to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. The two brothers came together on their way down to Tiergarten uh, and ended up with the defending winner, the number one Manti Racing Porsche, out of the race. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable to see. I mean, th- let's not forget, though, that they'd had a really good battle with each other earlier in the lap. Uh, Lawrence Van Thor getting past his uh, brother Dries on, on one of the other fast parts of the circuit. I think it was Schraubenschwanz. Uh, and then they were heading down the Dottinger straight up to Tiergarten. And uh, we were we were watching it on the helicopter cam like everyone else at home. And we were just sort of willing them to, willing Dries to back off or one of them to back off at least, heading into that really fast left, right, left. Um, and unfortunately, that never happened. Um, later on, um, we spoke to uh, both drivers, both of them obviously really disappointed that the accident happened and i think they both regretted um the fact that we had this this huge crash um but at the same time they insisted there was no bad blood between them that they were um they were racing hard as they as 
as, as you would expect between two brothers, arguably. And actually, Lawrence Van Thor posted an interesting um, post on uh, social media in which he said that uh, the reason he raced so hard in that situation is because um, he was racing against his brother. And, and we asked Reese after the race, did, did he sort of agree with that? And, and I suppose he didn't outright say yes but I, I think he sort of understood where where Lawrence was coming from this, this sort of real sibling rivalry and and it's sort of I hope it doesn't affect anything in the long term between those two guys they're certainly fantastic drivers and uh, fantastic guys and uh, it was a shame as much as anything to lose the Manthai Porsche so early on the defending winner absolutely and Dries Van Doren the number 15 Audi Sport Team Phoenix ended up going on to win the race more on that in a moment we saw another very interesting incident as the sun was beginning to set. The number 160 KTM crossbow, uh, Felix van der Laden, stopped on track dramatically well on fire. Felix tried to get back in the car to pump the brakes as it was rolling down the hill. Uh, ended up bouncing off the barriers, going across the track, caused a lengthy caution, but a really bizarre incident. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that I think only the number green 24 is, is going to throw up, to be honest. I mean, Felix did really well to get out of the the car while it was rolling down the hill and to be honest i didn't go down to teichmann racing so i'm not 100 percent sure why motion restarted after he initially parked it up but um yeah real sort of dangerous incident there and and i'm, I'm glad that that everyone came away from it unscathed both the driver the drivers around him and also the uh, marshals and, and fire safety crews so that was one of a number of incidents we saw at that stage of the race uh, two other prominent ones were the uh, two leaders crashing out in quick succession um, the TF Sport Aston Martin had been absolutely flying in the opening stages of the race. Um, they'd done a really interesting pit stop strategy. They pitted after just five laps. So they got a short pit stop, jumped right to the top of the field. Um, and they were just really going around and, and looked set to be a clear leader at halfway. But um, then Nicky team lost it in a freak incident. Um, he was I went down to him just as he was coming back to the paddock and he was really shaken by it. You could tell. Um, and, and the Aston crew were just heartbroken because this this is a race that arguably means more to Aston Martin than, than the Le Mans 24 hours. It, it's such a such a huge event for the manufacturer. Um, and so Nicky was unfortunate to hit an oil slick there and uh, he dropped out of the lead. And then we had another car only a few minutes later crash out. It was unbelievable. The 98 Rover Racing BMW, Sheldon van der Linde, suspension issue at... Uh, at uh, Callenhard, it was uh, not Callenhard at uh, Kesselschen. Sorry, it was a really e exciting few moments. And from that point onwards, the race started to settle into a rhythm whereby the 15 Audi was the car to beat. It, it, it risen to the top. It was exchanging strategy a bit with the Schubert BMW, trading uh, pit stops. But um, really, the Audi, I think, had the upper hand throughout. And as it came to the end of the race, it, that was the car that had uh, won the war of attrition and uh, ultimately came out on top, but only just. Yeah, as you said, that the TF Sport Aston Martin really, really looked very strong heading into the evening, and what a huge surprise. Let's talk about the Rovo Racing BMWs for a second, because both the 98 and the 99 retired, and that was a huge surprise. They looked to be a, a really clear favorite heading into this week. Yeah, I mean, Rover Racing's obviously got huge form at the Nürburgring, one of the best teams at this race. They won in 2020 in difficult conditions. Um, I, I suppose the only thing that was really, um, the, the question mark for them was was whether or not the M4 GT3 in its first race at the in, sorry in its first Nurburgring 24 would it last the distance and and the answer was no um, the pace was obviously there the BMW was I think instilling quite a bit of fear in some of the other teams knowing just how strong they were in the build up and and you know that sort of extended back to earlier 
Nürburgring races uh, this season. So um, yeah, to, to see both of those crash out the ninety nine, um, the yeah the ninety nine car sorry um, uh, was involved in an incident with the Toxport WRT Porsche. I think unfortunately Nick Yellowly a bit eager into the chicane there, and uh, they made contact. So yeah, Rover was. Um, packing up very early i had to go and grab hans peter naundorf at about 11 p.m or something because you know they, they were they were ready to leave and head back to saint ingbert but um yeah i think there was while it was incredibly disappointing for the rover and tf sport teams for their races to end the way they did um i think there was certainly a lot of relief up and down the paddock and that paved the way for some other cars to rise to the top um, that otherwise on pace probably weren't looking as competitive Absolutely. And after those, you know, very interesting eighth hour collisions in the evening, we saw lots of early morning mistakes on the Grand Prix circuit, which was really strange to see that amount of offs and spins and barrier touches uh, on that one section of the track. Yeah, it was, um, we were wondering uh, past sunrise and into the uh, sort of heading towards mid morning, when were we going to get some adverse weather at the Nürburgring? I mean, we've become used to it the last couple of years with those red flagged additions, but we, we hadn't seen any rain at all during the night which was a real treat to be honest but then um the, the weather did play its hand later in the race um as you said jonathan the, the damp conditions were really difficult and we saw plenty of drivers on slick tires struggling um and and that's sort of where the race ended up being won um Getsby performance with its number three Mercedes, they got right onto the tail of the 15 Phoenix Audi. Um, Fabian Schiller putting in a really good stint after a, a great double from uh, Adam Christodoulou as well to bring the gap down. Um, Schiller was right on the tail of Dries van Thor and um, was probably hoping to make a pass, but then he had to make a pit stop. And uh, But the problem was, and you can read the full reason for the strategic mismatch here on Sportscar 365 in a story we did, but um, the, the fact that Getspeed had to pit one lap earlier than Phoenix throughout the entire race, lasted all the way up until these crucial pit stops where Phoenix were the first ones to pit. And therefore, as the rain was changeable and difficult conditions, they had to decide and gamble on what tyres to pick. They decided to continue on slicks. It wasn't the right call, they acknowledged. Uh, one lap later, Phoenix came around. They'd seen that Maxi Gertz had a, perhaps a bit of a tough outlap. So they put these sort of drying wet, these cut slick, um, let's call it intermediary compound tyres um, onto the Audi and uh, that sort of ended up ensuring the, the 50 or so second gap that would last until the finish. So um, yeah, it was really just one one decision here or there was enough to win the race, I think. And, uh, you know, Getspeed certainly had the pace to challenge the Audi and uh, could have been a very different story with a very different car on top if the weather had been different. Absolutely. The number three Mercedes-AMG team, Get Speed, had to settle for second. The sister car, the number four, finished third, but uh, top honors went to that number 15 Audi Sport Team Phoenix Audi R8 LMS Evo 2 entry. It was their sixth win. Their last was in 2019. Audi now sits, I believe, third all-time in N24 wins, uh, overtaking Ford. Yeah, that's right. Um, they, they've still got a way to go to match BMW and Porsche, but uh, Audi, particularly in the GT3 era, have been so strong at this race and uh, Phoenix Racing in particular, they, they've accrued um, five wins with Audi now and another one with Porsche in the earlier days of the race. So um, it, it, it's sort of the, the old adage of this race is that um, it all comes down to experience and, and teams that know how to win this race will repeatedly do so. You know, you see teams like TF Sport coming in with the Aston Martin. Yes, they were quick, but they only had one car and it was the team's first race. And it, there were all sorts of things that sort of play against you in a race like this when when staying power is really the the trait that you need to have in droves and and phoenix with that lineup and that car there wasn't really anything stopping them today 
they nearly nearly ruined it for themselves though with the uh, penalty at the end full explanation of which is on sports car 365 but um the 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 subsequent penalty that was handed out three hours after the race um and a fine was nothing to take away from the fact that they had won the race strategically and i think that was understood by the stewards as well they deemed that there was no competitive advantage for um kelvin van der linde accidentally having the engine on during refueling at his final pit stop so at the end of the day, it was it was a breathe-in moment at the line, and, and the celebrations were had to be delayed until halfway around the Grand Prix lap on the warm down. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, Phoenix Racing was the best team at the Nurburgring 24. Well, absolutely, and I think you can forgive Vanderlinder. He had quite a busy 24 hours. He was pulling double duty and actually crashed out of the number five sister car. It's pretty rare to see a driver crash from the race and then go on to take the checkered flag to win it. I mean, Kelvin was was pretty open actually after the race about how. Um, he sort of feared getting back into the, the 15 car, um, having had that accident and he was having to sort of banish the fear of crashing out of the Nürburgring 24. Um, there's a real shock that comes with it. And uh, he, he had to brush that aside and, and sort of really show a bit of mental fortitude to, to get the 15, to sort of recalibrate his mind, get onto the 15 car strategy and, and go and deliver the win. Um, moreover, with this potential penalty hanging over him in the final stint, he was really pushing. He was told to extend the gap to a minute. Unfortunately for him, he didn't quite do it. But on the other hand, fortunately, the, the penalty that came three hours after the race was was inconsequential. But yeah, Kelvin, um, real up and down race. And, and uh, he said, you know, that's the life of a GT3 driver. We do 25 races a year. The emotions never plateau. It's either you're winning one week or you're zero the next. So it's... Um, it's, it's not an easy life, but I don't think he'd have it any other way. I suppose that's just racing a little bit of everything for the number 15, but uh, top honors at the 24 Hours of Nürburgring and what a race it was. And let's just talk about the atmosphere for a moment. Dan, you were there, 230,000 spectators. It looked like an absolutely incredible atmosphere. Oh, it was a party. Yeah, really, really great. Um, just bodies everywhere. You could barely move. Um, everyone seemed to have a, a bottle of Bitburger or some other lager pilsner attached to their hand throughout the race. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, I went to the race for the first time in 2019 and there was a big crowd there, but um, the locals in the media room and, and in the teams were saying that this is this is much more serious stuff. There are a lot more people here. And, you know, when you think about it, 230,000 people, we had the Indy 500 on, uh, on Sunday and, you know, the crowd there probably wasn't too much bigger than that in, in comparison when you think it, it's, the biggest sporting event in Germany on its day. So, um, yeah, really cool to see the fans there. Um, they were, uh, you know, they're absolutely motorsport mad um, in that part of the world. And, and people do travel from other countries as well. The race has got a big following in the UK, um, I, I know for one. So, um, yeah, to have everyone able to get to that party atmosphere and make it what that race should be with good weather, I think I think everyone deserved it, really. It, it was a real nice treat, and, and it was so great to see. So, uh, yeah, hopefully um, hopefully we can uh, continue in that same way in the coming years. Well, you and 230,000 of your closest friends were rewarded <laughs> with an excellent Legends race right before the main 24-hour event. And on the 50th anniversary of the Nürburgring 24, uninterrupted running for the first time since 2019. Oh yeah, I like the sound of that. Yeah, that was that was really good. Uh, with two red flag editions, you know, we we almost got a bit complacent getting full night's sleep in uh, 2020 and 2021. So uh, yeah, it was it was nice to have a bit of a, a brutal non-stop running race, and then that sort of that enabled the strategies to play out. It was really good because the, when I mentioned the the get speed Mercedes pitting one lap earlier than the Audi from Phoenix, that that was that was a trend that set itself sort of around 9 p.m. in the evening. So you know, imagine if we had a red flag for re rain or whatever. 
we had a safety car restart. We just wouldn't have had that strategic battle at the end. So the fact that we could have this full 24 hours enabled us to really see the race um, in its full glory. Um, and, and yeah, what, what a fantastic event it was. So, um, yeah, really, really looking forward to hopefully going back next year. I mean, in, in whatever guys, uh, any, anyone who's a motor racing fan should try to attend this event because it's a real treat and a, and a real novelty for the, the GT3 arena. Well, an excellent race at the Nürburgring 24 headlining the weekend and what an event it was. We also had Intelligent Money British GT Championship action at Donington Park, as well as Super GT Racing at Suzuka in Japan. You can find full race recaps of everything that happened this weekend in our weekly racing roundup on sportscar365.com. Let's move on to the news of the week. We'll start with WeatherTech finalizing their 24 Hours of Le Mans GTE-AM lineup. It'll be Julian Andlauer, Thomas Merrill, and Cooper McNeil, who's a team regular, uh, hopping aboard the number 79 WeatherTech Porsche for the 24-hour event. Julian Andlauer is a leading pro in the team. Merrill is the designated bronze driver, making his Le Mans debut. We're looking forward to seeing that. And as we said, Cooper McNeil uh, entering his eighth Le Mans 24 hours. There will be a packed LM GTE AM list this year, and we're certainly looking forward to all the action on track. Let's talk about Audi Sport for a moment. There have been some rumors and some uncertainty uh, revolving around the future of this program. And I understand, Dan, you have an update? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, um, our reporter Dave Uvema spoke to head of Audi Sport Customer Racing, Chris Renker, um, during the Nurburgring 24 weekend um, to address a bit of speculation that's been coming out about the um, manufacturer's uh, long-term future. Um, essentially, Renker said that the the short-term future at least is secured because uh, they've just released the current the uh, R8 LMS GT3 Evo 2, and he says that that's good all the way through for uh, a three-year homologation period. So that essentially gives us um, next year and the year after in Audi Sports support of GT3 racing. Um, so that's the sort of the that's the crux of it. The the, the problem is that Audi with the R8 there's there's not really a successor going on there and unless you look towards the electric vehicle side so um that's sort of a big thing that's playing into audi sports long-term future um and rank is certainly aware of that he's noted that the electric gt championship from the fia could be of interest to them in the future he said that eventually um audi should enter the series so lots of things at play but it seems as though the bottom line is that audi sport is um for the next couple of years at the very least here to stay in gt3 racing which would obviously be good news and um, we will have to see how developments go i know there's been a a lot of difficult stories i think going around the audi camp recently there was uh, the issue of land motorsport not uh, contesting the nurburgring 24 there's also been the uh, audi lmdh program going up in the air uh, with resulting in wrt uh, looking at other manufacturers for its prototype program. So um, lots of things on the table at Audi, and it's un clearly um, not the most stable time there, but um, Renker has affirmed the future, and you can read all of his comments on Sports Car 365. Well, we now know what engine BMW will be using in its LMDH entry. It's a turbo hybrid V8. Uh, yeah, it's got, it's got to be a hybrid based on the LMDH regulations, but the V8 bit is the one that we want to know. It's based on the P66 DTM engine, so that's not the one that was in the most recent turbocharged generation of uh, DTM cars, but it's the one before that. Um, so it's essentially a 10-year-old base engine, but BMW is doing all sorts of work to bring it up to speed. Uh, Andreas Roos um, confirmed what we thought we already know from a recent documentary video in which the engine was sort of shown on bench testing. Uh, he said, yes, it's based on the P66 engine. 
Um, we're doing all sorts of work to up, uprate it to to get it to the desired power level. Um, adding a turbocharger to it is one of the uh, one of one of the options. So um, yeah, BMW hard at work. They've been doing lots of dyno testing. They say they've tested the integrated engine and hybrid system together on a dyno rig, which is interesting, and that the full hybrid system will be operational from the first track test. Um, so that's got to be just around the corner based on those comments. Um, Roos seems to be um, really happy with the way things are going on the LMDH program. It's going to be two cars run by RLL in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship next year. Um, obviously, BMW has also been evaluating hypercar in WEC, but that remains to be seen. Um, but certainly on the technical side, hard at work at Munich, integrating that engine into the uh, Beck hybrid package and also uh, the Dallara-based chassis that, on which the car will be based. So, uh, yeah. It's it, it's great to see some some details finally dripping out of this program. It's always good to get a bit of a regular update to make sure these people are still <laughs> still hard at work and doing what they said they would do in the announcements. And uh, yeah, BMW definitely um, on the front foot heading towards their uh, 2023 program debut. Well, it's always got to be a huge challenge for a manufacturer, even one as, as large as BMW, to to create an engine for a specific category that's that's not exactly proprietary. So we've seen some manufacturers try to create a brand new engine. We've seen some manufacturers like BMW in this case uh, use what they've already got in the parts bin, and it sounds like they're they're using uh, some old parts, developing some newer parts, even some uh, Formula One technology coming on board. And it certainly will be exciting to see what BMW brings to the table. Yeah, definitely. And, and Ruth said that they looked at the performance curves. They looked at uh, other motorsport engines in their portfolio, including the M8 GTE engine, um, which, could, which could have made a return. But um, no, they, they ultimately settled on, on, on the P66 DTM unit, the 4-litre V8, um, as the base. And, and, and therefore, they're, they're happy with the performance that it's going to provide um, in order to get them to that stage, that, that sort of 500 kilowatt limit is, is, is the goal, really. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, um, it's good to hear the details. And, and I'm sure we'll hear more about um, the, the testing and the development and, and the sort of handling of, of the uh, BMW L M L and D H car as it gets uh, further developed. And uh, yeah, track testing can't be too far away. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that one. Speaking of track testing, Toyota has headed to Spa for a pre shakedown of their GR010 hypercars. The two-day shakedown will include Mike Conway and Sebastian Buemi taking the wheel. This is generally pretty routine for Toyota. Headed up to the big 24-hour event, uh, Toyota is looking for their fifth straight overall Le Mans win. Uh, and as we know, they were kind of battling some hybrid unit gremlins at Spa. So certainly it'll be good to get back on track at the same location to try to iron those things out before the big race. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If there's there's a place where you're going to do a shakedown, it's the best place to do it is where you've most recently had issues. So couldn't have been more fortuitous there for Toyota. Um, they're only based a few uh, few miles down the road in Cologne. So they were able to uh, truck everything over. Uh, the Le Mans paddock is setting up nicely at the moment. So uh, yeah, they did that shakedown. A few other teams are out testing at uh, Aragon, I believe. I think uh, Ferrari took their GTE Pro cars down there as well as some LMP2 teams. So the Le Mans fever is slowly starting to seep in and people are getting a bit excited. The, uh, the, the the scene will be set very soon for some uh, test day action this weekend. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that one, as as always. Well, we just had one excellent 24-hour event this weekend. I, I'm already itching for another one, so we'll see what <laughs> Le Mans brings in, in a couple of weeks. Nelson Piquet Jr. will return in LMP2 with United Auto Sport. He will drive uh, in the European Le Mans Series in a pro-am entry for the 2023 season. He'll be paired with former Bentley factory driver Andy Merrick, as well as bronze-rated driver Daniel Schneider. 
He is currently driving in the Lamborghini Super Trofeo North American Series with Anza Motorsport, where he recently picked up a win in NOLA. We'll be excited to see the former F1 driver back on track in LMP2. Uh, Aston Martin has named its candidates for the 2023 Academy Driver Prize. 22 Aston Martin Young Drivers will be assessed throughout the year, announcing a standout who will receive factory backing. All but one of the 22 drivers named are currently driving Aston Martin Vantage GT4s. Uh, Theo Newitt is driving a Vantage GT3 in Fanatec GT World Challenge America, powered by AWS. And uh, we actually saw uh, Josh Miller and Jamie Day on track this weekend in the Intelligent Money British GT Championship. Well, we'd like to thank Dan Lloyd for taking the time to join us. We know you're about to hop on a flight to head back from Germany, so we wish you safe travels. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, wishing you all the best, too, and yeah, looking forward to Le Mans just around the corner. And with this, we'll bring in SportsCar 365's editor-in-chief, John DeGeese. John, how was your weekend? It was pretty good. How about, how about yourself? It was great. Lots of uh, great action on track and excellent Nürburgring 24 and uh, action really all around the racing world, so it was a great weekend. Let's move into answering some listener questions. Uh, the first one comes uh, in the comment section of our previous episode from He Who Knows. It was the 50th edition of the Nürburgring 24 in the books. Which one stands as your favorite? John, I'll toss it to you. Wow. Um, I, that's a really tough question because through the years, there's been some crazy ones. Um, even this year, uh, I think ranks pretty high on, on the list and just uh, seeing what, what Dan had, a, had to say from the overall event. Um, I, I remember there was a couple of good ones back in 2015, 2016 uh, that were really memorable as well. Uh, I, I couldn't say a specific year. It's um, it's a crazy race, like like Dan said, lots of lots of fans, and it was good this year to sort of see it go back to somewhat normal normalcy um, in in this COVID world. So um, yeah, I I can't name a specific edition, but um, they're all pretty memorable for their in their own right. I'd have to agree with you there. I think the uh, this 2022 edition was was pretty special. The number of fans that attended. We had the the Legends race before. We had a, a full uninterrupted 24. Some great action. Front runners uh, falling out, crashing out. A lot of drama. So I'm going to have to put this year in the book. But we'll see what next year brings. Our next question comes from Ricky Zagata. With Andretti Autosport working to join the Formula One grid, what does this mean for their sports car racing endeavors? We we know that Andretti uh, has in, expressed interest in LMDH involvement with Alpine. We know that they have uh, expressed that they will be pairing with Renault for their F1 bid should that go through. So that partnership isn't really a surprise. We have Jared Andretti in LMP3 this season. But John, what are your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, I, I believe that they're separate. Um, I don't think anybody's come out and said what you know what effect uh, it would have on each other if Andretti Autosport gets its wishes and joining the F1 grid. Um, I believe that they both both can seriously happen: a sports car program and an F1 program. Um, like you said, Jonathan, they're in talks with the Renault Group for F1, and there has been you know confirmation that they were they're evaluating a potential Alp, alpine lmdh that comes with a lot of caveats because alpine is not able to run in the u.s in the in the weather tech championship because they don't sell cars here um there could that car could potentially be rebadged as a nissan um, but then nissan would have to come up with the financial um, requirements to race in imsa so I, I know that andretti autosport have been looking at other lmdh manufacturers including audi that program's on hold most likely canceled altogether um porsche's come out and said that there's going to be a maximum of two customer cars in the weather tech championships 
starting next year. That could potentially be of, of interest for Andretti. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of possibilities right now. But um, to be frank, I think that they're first objective is to secure their F1 grid space. And and based on what I've seen in, in, in media there, that's quite a tall order. So we'll have to wait and see how all that develops. And we do know that the Andretti Motorsport footprint is prolific. So it's certainly not inconceivable to think that they can spin a couple plates at once, uh, even if they do get that F1 bid. Yeah, absolutely. Our next couple of questions come compliments of the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. Our first one from Johnny Hawksworth one Can you dive into why the N24 feed on YouTube went down after a couple hours? Did Motor Trend TV buy the rights to the show in the U.S. after it started? Uh, And this was a problem that was unique, I believe, to U.S. viewers, and it had to do uh, with an agreement, as far as I understand, that that took place before the event and then uh, sort of accidentally airing the feed in the U.S. and then correcting it later. Yeah, that's the understanding I had as well. Uh, Motor Trend typically broadcasts this race. I think it was GeoBlock last year, as far as I remember, as well, um, the, the, the free live stream that is, and um, it was actually a mistake that it was actually unblocked for the first four hours. And I know that caused a lot of uh, uh, consternation among, amongst U.S. viewers, and that's a shame that it happened that way. But um, yes, yeah, for this kind of situation, uh, much like the WEC, uh, Motor Trend has exclusivity in the U.S. market. So um, my suggestion to be is to subscribe to Motor Trend. You get a lot of racing action on that uh, on that app service. I think it's it's only five dollars a month, even cheaper for a yearly plan. Um, we're not sponsored by them at all. I have no affiliation with them. We don't. But just from a sheer uh, motorsport standpoint, there's a lot of racing you can watch on that channel, and um, I, I think that's well worth it. And instead of com- instead of complaining about not having the the race for free, you can have it for you know less than five dollars a month and find other racing as well on there. Um, and I, I think it'd be well worth the investment there. Our next question also comes via hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. At Dr. Joy Bananas asks, is there a reason uh, why, whether it's IMSA, SRO, WEC, ELMS, uh, or even F1, timing for tracks always has three sectors? Uh, he kind of notes that some tracks have significantly longer sectors than others. He says Road America, probably all three sectors uh, at Lime Rock are, are shorter than a sector at Road America. Why three sectors? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I did some research and I couldn't really figure it out. Um, I would think that the reason that there's only three sectors is, be- is probably more of a legacy issue um, from the, the years past where um, the technology maybe only supported, you know, so much data to go through in real time over the course of a lap. Um, I do remember some tracks having more than three sectors. I can't remember where it was, or maybe it was a specific event. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. In the last couple of years, it might have been Bathurst. It might have been Australia. I, 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 they have some unique timing um, situations there where they actually round up to four decimal points instead of three um, for, for lap times, for instance. That's why I'm thinking it might have been the Bathurst 12-hour at some point. But um, to answer your question directly, I no, I don't have a, a reason. I'm sure the technology is out there to do more than three sectors, but it is um, sort of limited to that. I think more or less because of 
when timing and scoring systems came out, they were probably only so much bandwidth that could be transferred between data. And now, obviously, there's uh, been newer technology out available, but these systems are already built, and it probably would cost quite a lot of money to add more sectors to to a racetrack, for instance, and and bring in more uh, more of the timing systems to beef it up more. So I think that's why it sort of sticks at three for now. But um, yeah, really good question. Yeah, this was a really interesting one to research because there's not a ton out there about it. What I could find was maybe that this just offers some uniformity among all motorsport series where marshals and officials kind of know what they're getting into. But, mm. you know, if you watch MotoGP at all, they use four sectors. Uh, and in qualifying for the N24, they have nine sectors. Of course, that's just due to the sheer massive size of the Nordschleife. But still, uh, really interesting uh, uh, th- that there are just three sectors. We'll definitely try to do more digging on that in the future. But uh, for now, that seems to be the general consensus. And if you want your question answered right here on the show, make sure to post it either in the comments section below this episode or head to Twitter and post your question with the hashtag AskDoubleStint and we'll put our heads together and do our best to answer your question. Let's move on to giving you a preview of what's to come in the racing world. We'll have GT World Challenge Europe powered by AWS Action at Paul Ricard for their 1,000-kilometer race. And in preparation for the 24 Hours of Le Mans, there is a test day scheduled Sunday, June 5th, where we'll get to see everybody on track together for the first time to test and tune before the big event. Yeah, lots of anticipation building towards the the test day. Um, the much like last year, where it was compact between the test day being one week before the race, it's still the case this year. But then the add scrutineering in to the beginning of it for on Friday and Saturday. Um, that's going back into the tr- traditional town center, so there's going to be lots of fans there. Um, the test day is going to be as important as as any other year, I would think, with with all 62 cars out on track. Um, we might not see every single driver. Um, they're not all required. Platinum rated drivers are exempt. And we have a bunch of drivers coming from the Detroit uh, IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship race, which we'll talk to, talk about in a minute here. But um, that race is actually a little later in the day this year, which makes it a little difficult for drivers to head over to France um, for the test day. We'll see how many make it over. But um, nonetheless, a, a big importance around the test day. Again, little time for, for crews to work on the cars between that and the official start of on-track action with free practice on Wednesday of next week. So um, lots of teams are going to have to keep an eye on their cars, make sure they don't push too much because if if you end up binning the car and needing a new chassis, it's going to be a bit of a race against time to get on track for uh, for Wednesday's free practice sessions. So uh, Dan Lloyd and Davey will be on, on grounds for us um, at Lama this coming weekend. I'll be joining them the following uh, Monday after uh, getting uh, wrapped up with the Detroit uh, IMSA weekend. So I'm looking forward to all the action there. Well, you mentioned IMSA. IMSA in the series is headed to Belle Isle in Detroit for their round there, the last round on the island before they head to the street circuit. In Detroit, Cadillac will have to contend with its third consecutive BOP adjustment, adding 15 kilograms to the overall weight. 960 kilograms, the heaviest it's been all season. The Acuras, meanwhile, have been unchanged since Long Beach, 40 kilos down at 920 Uh, The other BOP change comes for the BMW M4 GT3s, adding 10 kilos as well for the Mid-Ohio winning manufacturer with Turner Motorsports. Yeah, it's an interesting game going on. I wouldn't say game. It's an interesting sequence of events for the Cadillac. Um, It started 
um, with like you said, 15 kilos less at the most recent race at mid Ohio, it had 10 kilos more at, um, the previous round at Laguna Seca. So it's been fluctuating quite a bit in the last couple of races. And we haven't seen that that much in the DPI ranks. Uh, the BOP had been really stable for quite a long time. And we've seen this tinkering with the, with the weights, um, almost since the start of the year, uh, the Acura had, had a 10 kilo weight break that it's, um, sustained through these races. I think that came prior to Long Beach. Um, then we thought it, things were going to be somewhat stable, but then the the, the Cadillac's gone back and forth. Obviously, IMS is trying to do its best it can to balance things out, and we'll have to see how it affects things this weekend. The, the Cadillac is definitely a favorite on the street course just because of a, the, its bumpy nature. Um, Belle Isle is a traditionally bumpy track, and um, the, the Acura does not suit is not as suited as, as well there on, on the tight confines where torque is, it really plays into its, its measure, um, both in the engine performance and also drivability. Um, the Orica based chassis, um, for the Acura is, is best on natural terrain road courses. Like we've seen in the last couple of races where it's quite, um, been quite dominant there. So, um, We'll have to wait and see what happens, but, you know, have to sort of trust in IMSA for their BOP changes. The same goes for the GTD ranks with the BMW getting a bit of a weight increase. Um, you know, it shouldn't, you know, it, it, it ended up winning the, the mid Ohio race with Turner motorsport. Um, that was after a, a post race, uh, a DQ for the inception racing McLaren. Um, that's not there this weekend because they're focusing on Lama. We have a total of 16 entries for this coming weekend. Um, including the second investor Sullivan Lexus, still to be announced driver alongside Jack Hawksworth. Richard Highstand, who partnered with Jack at Mid Ohio, is focusing on Lama this coming weekend. So it'll be interesting to see which driver Vester Sullivan brings in um, to the lineup this weekend. And uh, be be sure to keep it tuned to Sports Car 365 for the latest news on that. Um, Pretty deplete, depleted field. There's a couple other teams not uh, entering as we sort of suspected in GTD. Um, no NTE Sport Lamborghini, um, no Hardpoint Porsche. So um, it's interesting to sort of see what happens with some of these entries that were supposed to be um, doing the full season, but they haven't made the last couple of races in GTD. Um, we know there's a lot of financial concerns within some teams, other teams looking at maybe focusing on customer racing programs like Hardpoint. So um, hoping that the grid rebounds a little bit um, for the next race at Watkins Glen. Obviously, this is just a two-class race in Detroit with DPI and GTD. So we were expecting it to be a lower grid count to begin with. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see once um, all the classes return for the following race at Watkins Glen later in, in June. Well, certainly plenty to watch there. And you mentioned the the second entry for Vassar Sullivan in GTD and in the 10 total GTD cars there. Uh, the 12 car was elevated to third post-race at Mid-Ohio after that penalty, as you mentioned. Uh, and the 17 car finished seventh. So certainly Vassar Sullivan will be hoping uh, that there's some opportunity in a smaller field for both of those cars to have a good result. Yeah, and um, they were probably expecting a little better of a result at Mid-Ohio. That's their, their probably their most successful track uh, in, in terms of results in the past. And like you said, it got a, ended up getting a podium with the 12 car, but I'm sure they're looking for a little bit better results in, in Detroit this coming weekend. Absolutely, and you know how fast the Cadillacs looked at Long Beach, that first to last in class to back to first uh, amazing recovery drive for Bourdais. So we know they have plenty of pace, even maybe with the 15-kilogram uh, weight added so certainly will be an interesting one to watch at detroit 
That's it for us this week on the podcast. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you're tuning in from. Thanks to Dan Lloyd and John DeGeese for joining us on the show today. We'll see you right back here next week for another edition of Double Stint.